Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us for the CIO Strategy Snapshot to kick off another week. Glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. Thank you for dropping by Top of the Morning and looking forward to our conversation today. Good morning, Dan. Happy Monday. Good to be here to spend another week. So, Jason, following up from our conversation last Monday, we spoke about how factors such as the Fed, corporate earnings, as well as economic data, these factors have been supportive for the markets. Now, late last week, we started receiving key data for the month of July. That consisted of the ISM indices, as well as the employment report, which we received on Friday morning. From your lens, Jason, what did these data points reveal, and how did markets respond? Well, the data came in consistent with the markets increasingly believing in the soft landing. I think most prevalent of that is the labor market data, and of that is the, the May or the July payrolls report, where we saw uh, you know, job gains a little bit below consensus expectations, which was 200,000. They came in at 187. But if you add that to other data in terms of job openings, uh, new jobless claims, announced job layoffs uh, across different metrics, they all continue to show that the labor market is moderating slightly or gradually. Um, it's cooling off a little bit. Although the fact that wage growth surprised to the upside shows that it's, it's you know, definitely kind of a gradual cooling off situation. But overall, labor market is still, you know, quite solid, still relatively tight, should still be there for kind of supportive consumer spending. Uh, the ISM indices, it's more of a mixed picture. If you take the ISM manufacturing uh, index, it was essentially flat. It ticked up, like, literally, like, you know, a couple of tenths of a percent. The ISM new orders index ticked a little bit higher. So what you start to see is if you look at charts of them, they're kind of you know, bottoming out, or at least right now it looks like it's a bit of a bottom, and then the next turn would be at some point an inflection higher. Uh, when will that happen? If that definitely will happen, that that's to be determined. It could be a case that it's you know, plateauing right now, but then we'll take another leg lower. But at least it's not getting at the moment any worse. So again, the data overall has been consistent with you know things are holding up. Uh, you know we don't have yet enough data to really have a definitive view of what the third quarter GDP would be. But early tracking estimates are around 1.5%, and this comes after 2% in the first quarter of this year, 2.4% in the second quarter. So moderation, but still you know, relatively solid kind of growth story. But that said, you know, the S&P was down at 2.4% last week. Uh, it was a risk-off market overall for equities, for other asset classes, and really it was a move higher in rates. That was the real story. So it wasn't the case that the economic data was disappointing. The markets were already kind of pricing for a soft landing for a good economic situation. So the data coming in as they did, it's like, well, now it's sort of this is what we expect. This is sort of implicitly what the market expects. Um, so for it to not move markets hard, that's understandable when there are other forces and factors out in, in, in place. But I think bottom line is from an economic data perspective, uh, it was consistent last week with the economy trending towards a soft landing, which doesn't rule out the possibility at some point along down the line that we could still get a recession, you know, because every kind of hard landing and recession kind of begins by looking like a soft landing. So that's an important kind of distinction to note there. 
And speaking of economic data, key economic data, we will have inflation readings coming out later this week, which we can talk about a bit later in the conversation. Though, Jason, I do want to get your thoughts on treasuries because briefly on Friday, we did see the 10-year hit a multi-month high as it has been hovering above 4%, which it continues to do as we're speaking this morning. What factors have been pushing treasury yields higher? Well, there are three main factors. The first was Bank of Japan announced that it was easing its yield curve control measures. So the yield curve control basically meant that they didn't want the 10-year Treasury yield going above, or the 10-year sorry, JGB, the yield on that going much above initially 20 basis points. You know, that was a year ago. They eased that off earlier this year to about 50 basis points. And now they basically said it's going to be like 1%, targeted around 50 basis points, but allowing sort of leeway. So as they've allowed their yields to go higher, it does attract investors, and particularly Japanese investors who've been looking outside of Japan to pick up some income. Now they can say, well, now I can actually get some sort of yield by buying you know, 10-year JGBs. So that was the catalyst that has global implications. Uh, and Japan is a, one of the, you know, the biggest bond market buyers out there, the Bank of Japan specifically. So anything they do that changes it means that there's one less of a buyer out there. Uh, another factor was Earlier in the week, last week, uh, the Treasury Department announced their funding of new treasuries, their, their supply for the rest of this quarter and also the fourth quarter. And the numbers came in higher than expected. In some way, they're kind of somewhat staggering how much they're talking about issuing uh, in the range of $1 trillion in supply in the third quarter. Um, so enormous amount of bonds that are coming to market you know, this quarter. Someone has to buy them. Uh, and you know, it's more than was kind of expected in the market. Is the supply is greater, you know, the demand is fixed, all is equal. That means, you know, the price of treasuries has to decline, interest rates go higher. The third factor that contributed to the, uh, you know, yields going higher was pitch ratings, downgrading U.S. sovereign debt from AAA to AA plus, uh, on the grounds that given sort of the governance, the political situation in the U.S., there is a little bit of risk there in terms of, you know, like, for example, like with the debt ceiling, creating even some sort of technical defaults. So that was the move they made. Of these three factors, the Fitch rating got the most you know, attention. So, you know, politicians were out there criticizing it. Some you know, prominent investors and, and bank CEOs were out there sort of saying, like, this move was unwarranted. So for, for many people, this was kind of the big story. But really, from a, a market perspective, it was the change with the Bank of Japan and the Treasury supply that just from a technical perspective, I mean, you have, uh, you know, essentially more supply and fewer buyers out there. That's the case. You know, the price has to decline to uh, you know, to clear everything. Lower prices for treasuries means higher you know, treasury yields. Now, some of that is also you know, sort of new news, but at the same time, it takes out the markets a little, little bit of time to kind of absorb and adjust. And ultimately, then they kind of come back to being dictated more by the economic fundamentals of how long do rates have to stay high? When will the Fed start cutting? So another sort of implicit factor is, is the economic data, going back to you know, the first question, has, has held up better as the probability of recession has kind of gone you know, lower, you're going to see more and more investors say, well, actually, the Fed doesn't need to cut very much at all next year. And it's actually, you know, the market's kind of moved much closer to what the Fed is saying is about 100 basis points of cuts next year. So as that happens, all sequel, your longer end rates are also going to kind of back up a little bit as well. So higher rates also reflect implicitly you know, the better kind of growth backdrop. And it just means rates can stay higher for longer just because economic data and the economy is able to absorb that, and the Fed ultimately then will keep rates higher for longer. It's a mix of technical factors that have pushed the 10-year above 4% and and into the multi-month highs, but also some fundamental good news as well. 
So, Jason, if we take a step back, look at the markets overall, I do want to point out to our listeners that last week you did publish a blog titled What's Next? And this is after a 10% rally in the S&P 500 in June as well as July. So what's your conclusion, Jason, as to what comes next? Well, I think that's important context. As you mentioned, that the 10% rally in the S&P in June and July through the end of July, the S&P was basically up 20% year-to-date, so a very strong year, fueled by increasing optimism that we'll get a self-landing. In fact, I'd say by the time, like last week, you know, the markets, the consensus view among investors was that, you know, we will get a self-landing, which is a pretty dramatic shift from, let's say, at the start of the month where it was sort of drifting in that direction, but still I think the majority of investors would have said, we're going to get a recession starting by year-end early next year. And, and now that is, is flipped which means that a lot of good news was kind of already priced into the markets. Uh, and it was interesting before the market, you know, before things kind of sold off a little bit last week, if you take the S&P, it got close to 4,600, but never closed above it. And it was in that range or kind of close to it, that ceiling for about, you know, almost 10 days. So it was almost a, that the markets had moved to price in all this good news on the economic front, inflation coming down. There hadn't been many tail risks. Investors had been sort of adding back exposure it pushed equities higher. But once that happens, well, then you have to ask, like, what's the kind of the catalyst to move higher? And if you get any data points or any news that is sort of disappointing, I think some of the stuff that we got last week in terms of you know, the Treasury supply, the downgrade, or you know, the, the change in terms of the Japan Central Bank being less accommodated, like, these are I mean, relatively modest, but still a little bit of headwinds for the markets in a way that it hadn't experienced in, essentially in two months. So as, as we've kind of digested all the good news, I think where this leaves us, at least in terms of the near term, is the markets might feel a little bit listless as we now move, you know, more into August. You know, you know people are taking vacations. The markets tend to get less liquid, uh, and, and this month and heading into you know the fall, there's not a lot of obvious catalyzing news one way or another that can really drive the markets higher. Uh, you mentioned the CPI data that we will get on uh, the 10th on, on Thursday. It's expected to show another, you know, relatively modest month in terms of core CPI or, piece or CPI data, meaning you're starting to see, you know, core measures of inflation really kind of coming down in a sustainable way. So if that happens, it'll be sort of as the market expects, which is continued improvement in inflation. Barring that, there's not a lot of other data points that we can look to this month. That could be a real market move. It might take until we get, you know, uh, August data and early September. So now you have two months of employment data, two months of inflation data before you go into the FOMC meeting uh, on, I think it's, I believe it's September 20th, where they could hike or they could sort of alter their projections going forward in a way that the market might perceive as either as hawkish or dovish. So I think for the time being, you know, it's going to take a little while for enough information, new information to come in that's going to really cause a notable market shift, given the markets had a big move earlier in the summer. I think now it's more of a kind of somewhat range-bound and some, in some way kind of directionless markets for the time. And until we either see we, we get negative news that cause the markets to pull back or we get some catalysts to cause the markets you know, to move you know, you know, considerably higher sort of break out of that, that 4,600 sort of feeling that seems to exist for, for a couple of weeks in the marketplace. So, Jason, within the same blog, you go on to talk about how the S&P 500, Treasury yields, as well as the U.S. dollar, they all have been range-bound all year and back into 2022, and that the markets need catalysts to break out those ranges. What do you see as the potential catalysts being? Well, let's just set context first on terms of what, the, what these ranges are. You know, for the S&P 500, 
if we go back to the spring of 2022, the S&P really ranged between 3,700 and 4,300 and moved up and down. And it moved up and down based on the market sentiment, you know, the implicit probability of a soft landing. So the investors got more comfortable with the soft landing. You'd see equities rally. And then when there was concerns that, well, that actually wouldn't materialize, you'd see them pull back. The same thing was true with Treasury yields. The 10-year yield for, for all this up until just last week, it was really between about 3.4% and, and 4%. And for the U.S. dollar, if we think of it relative to zero, of like kind of 105 to 110, you know, that sort of range. And it would sort of move up and down again based on the market sort of expectations implicitly for a soft landing, the, you know, the probability of a soft landing. What we saw through July was the S&P was able to kind of break above that kind of going forward, uh, you know, getting up almost all the way up to 4,600. So as tail risks have receded, as the, uh, you know, the downside looks less and less, I think really what you've seen is, is at least for the equities, is that range kind of shift higher? And, you know, something like, let's say, you know, 4,200 to 4,600. This is, you know, maybe an approximate range of where they could trade kind of going forward. To really they'll break out to the upside or for the dollar to kind of break down to the downside to get even weaker versus other currencies, you need some sort of catalyst because a lot of the kind of news in terms of soft landing is already you know, priced in. Expectations about central banks are kind of already priced in. And so in the blog, I suggested a couple of catalysts that could really cause markets to move higher for equities or lower for the dollar. Uh, and one of them would be is if the Fed and other central banks are able to start cutting earlier than the market currently assumes, earlier than the Fed is projecting, because inflation data continues to you know, go in the right direction, not because growth data comes down. If you have that situation, and, and we'll get another data point, as I mentioned, on, on Thursday with the CPI, if you continue to see inflation with a run rate of like 3% or less in the second half of this year, well, then the Fed has sort of justification for maybe trimming rates uh, early next year, simply because if they don't, implicitly the policy rate will get more restrictive in real terms. Because if you stay at 5.5% and inflation comes down, the real interest rate kind of mechanically just goes up. And if the Fed wants to avoid policy getting tighter as we move into next year, they actually have to trim rates a little bit. Any hint or sign that the Fed could be doing something along those lines because inflation dictates it more so than, than growth is weak, that would be a positive catalyst because that means that the Fed is starting to sort of pivot towards being much more kind of supportive for, you know, the economy overall and therefore equity markets. Another potential catalyst is if you start to see an inflection point, a clear inflection point in sort of manufacturing data. And I go back to my opening comments regarding the ISM manufacturing index. It looks like it's kind of hitting the bottom right now and maybe inflecting a little bit higher. It's going to take a few more months. You know, for data coming to kind of for investors to become confident that you know the worst of the manufacturing contraction in the U.S. and globally is over and it's going to start to inflect higher. If you get that situation happening combined with a housing market that, that looks like in the U.S. it's kind of passed through its recession and, and now it's kind of recovering, well then it makes it harder and harder to get a recession at some point next year. So the markets can start to, even though they've consensus views we got to sell planning, I think there's still some skepticism about that in terms of how investors are positioned. If you get the manufacturing sector kind of really kind of inflecting while well, the economy hasn't rolled over at all, then I think you have more conviction that you know, things will be okay. So if you get that combined with lower inflation, and you know it's pretty simple, lower inflation, you know decent growth, that's a good environment for equities to kind of move higher and trend higher into next year. It may not be until well into the fourth quarter or next year before we see that, but I think those would be the catalysts that I would watch for to see kind of to, to break out of the ranges that appears to be kind of you now set again. You know, higher range than it was before, but still somewhat range bound. And chill investors can be really confident that 
we are going to get that self-landing sort of the, the cycle will almost kind of reset to like an earlier stage. So, Jason, with that market outlook in mind, let's talk about positioning as we begin to close out. What are you recommending that investors do at the moment? So the, the near-term situation, you know, is, you know, as I mentioned, kind of probably somewhat directionless markets. Uh, and until we get those positive catalysts, but it's also, as we saw last week, the markets are priced for a lot of really good news. Uh, if that doesn't materialize, there's scope for sort of downside for, for equities, for credit spreads widening out. So a couple of things that we like, and these are a few messages that we've been saying for a couple of months now, is that with the equity markets kind of look for those laggards that have, you know, underperformed earlier this year. You know, that still might be up, but not as up as much as, you know, the magnificent seven sort of tech stocks. You know, they started to recover a little bit, I'd say, over the past two months, but there's still a lot of scope for kind of catch up if that's the case. Or uh, if those stocks don't perform, you know, the magnificent seven don't perform, then, you know, on a relative basis, kind of the laggards could actually do relatively better, even in a down market. And we saw that, you know, at least last week with Apple, giving a little bit underwhelming reports in terms of its sales and stock was down. So you can see a situation where, and that's kind of a case where these laggards can actually outperform even in a down market. Uh, and that means that like an equal weighted S&P 100 index, you know, value stocks, or looking outside of the, the U.S., including emerging markets. The other you know, key message we've had is, you know, for to buy high-quality bonds. We've been talking about the yield over, over 10% for, or over 4% for the 10-year yield, or the Treasury yield. That's a pretty attractive level to buy either treasuries or other high-quality bonds, whether it's high-quality munis, uh, investment-grade corporate bonds, uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities, things that would be giving you yields of 5 to 6%. Um, we think that yields are likely to decline, you know, after they kind of digest some of these technical dynamics and the economy does slow. So those are a pretty attractive area to, especially at these levels, to be adding back to some sort of duration exposure, especially for people who've been sitting in a lot of cash, extending that duration, buying these uh, that give you a little bit more yield. Uh, and also give you protection if things go worse and, the, and yields decline and they can help diversify your portfolio. So those are the two key things I'd say right now. Look for equity laggards and buy high-quality bonds. Well, Jason, as always, appreciate the guidance when it comes to positioning, and thank you for joining us to outline your market outlook, and it will be a key week ahead with the inflation data coming down the pike, so plenty to catch up on when we speak again next Monday. Though, Jason, thank you again for your time and insights today. Wish you a great week ahead, and looking forward to picking back up with our conversation again soon. You're welcome. Have a great week. Again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of asset allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. As mentioned, Jason's latest blog titled What's Next is now available up on UBS.com slash CIO for clients of UBS. Please reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. From UBS Studios, I'm Ben Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment
investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. Thank you.